Hello, my name is Josh Hirsch, and I'm an associate editor here at the JNIS. I'd like to thank Rob Tarr and the entire editorial staff of the JNIS for allowing us to do this podcast. The article in question today is Affordable Care 2014, A Tale of Two Boards. This went online first in late June of 2014. Readers of JNIS no doubt recognize that really since our first volume, we've been very interested in socioeconomic content, publishing 40 articles in that uh, group of uh, topics. The Affordable Care Act has provided us with substantial material for review and analysis. Indeed, soon after the legislation was passed, a foundational article was published in the journal looking at the entirety of the legislation. Subsequent to that, Individual articles looked at the powerful independent boards, IPAB and PCORI, that are associated with the Affordable Care Act. This became important as we looked forward into 2014, the present year, and were quite surprised by the quite divergent positions these independent boards now occupy. I'm joined by two leaders in the field of healthcare economics and healthcare policy. Geraldine McGinty is a friend who, incidentally, did a fellowship in women's imaging at the Massachusetts General Hospital a number of years back. She's practiced in the New York area for the past 20 years, currently working at the Weill Cornell School of Medicine. Because of her knowledge um, in healthcare economics and her skill set associated with obtaining a master's in business, Geraldine is at the forefront of the leadership of multiple national organizations. Perhaps most apropos, this particular topic today, she chairs the Commission on Economics at the ACR. This position is not only critical for radiologists, but I would say all participants in the healthcare endeavor. Rich Duzak is an interventionist by training. In fact, he did his fellowship, I'll throw this in there, at the University of Pennsylvania, another a fan favorite here at the Janus podcast series. Rich's J job is serving as vice chair for health policy and practice at Emory University, but for about 50% of his time, really in what is to me an amazing uh, symbiosis of practitioner and policy expert, he serves as the chief medical officer of the Neiman Policy Institute. In those capacities, he's authored over 100 publications that have published in peer-reviewed journals. So at this point, I'd like to welcome Rich and Geraldine to this podcast. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. And just as a tip for uh, listeners, Geraldine will be easily distinguished from Rich and myself. Her 20 years in New York have left her with a thick New York accent. So (laughs) listeners can decide uh, whether that's true or not. So let's start with you, Rich. Um, let's transport back really just a couple of years to the first Obama administration. Could you describe the circumstances that led to the development of the Affordable Care Act back then? Sure, Josh. And actually, maybe I'll uh, even just go back a little bit further in time for um, some perspective um, to when probably um, all of us were uh, just uh, getting prepared to uh, start uh, grade school uh, back in the 1960s um, in the U.S. when um, the uh, Medicare uh, legislation was uh, passed. And it really changed the entire dynamic of um, health care delivery in this country, um, 
really changing the entire paradigm that somebody else is um, paying um, for um, people's um, health care. Um, and uh, so not only for the uh, Medicare beneficiaries, was the government now um, in a, a, a position to be uh, responsible for the um, big ticket items, um, but it increasingly uh, supported the trend that employers um, would be increasingly responsible for um, the um, health care uh, responsibility for um, their workforce. And so a number of things happened over the uh, few decades after that. I mean, number one, um, we had more um, deep pockets um, paying for um, health care services, whether it's the government or the employer. And um, patients, in a way, were um, a bit disconnected from the bills. Um, we've had an increasingly aging population um, over the uh, last few decades. And we've gone through an amazing technological revolution um, that really has um, opened up amazing amounts of opportunities, um, but also carried with it um, some uh, pretty um, intense um, uh, price tags um, with them. And so the country, as we've looked at the trajectory of healthcare spending, now on a trajectory, unless things really change for healthcare to consume about 25% of our gross domestic product within the next decade or so. We've seen a number of initiatives politically to try to reel back that spending, certainly back um, in her sort of first political um, uh, entrance on the national stage. Um, Hillary Clinton uh, was appointed czar by her um, husband, um, and that wound up being um, completely controversial and really went nowhere with the um, Hillary Care uh, legislation that was being proposed by her. But fast forward now, a couple decades almost after that, um, the reform of our health care delivery system is obviously a huge priority for um, President um, Barack Obama. He came in at a time uh, where the um, popular support for his predecessor, George W. Bush, uh, was amazingly low. Um, and really in his first term came in just in a, in a very enviable political position with the Democratic uh, control of the Senate, Democratic uh, control um, of the House, um, and was really poised to be pushing through some uh, very monumental, um, thoughtful legislation in a very controlled um, environment. And then a few political things happened. Senator Ted Kennedy passed away. Um, Scott Brown was uh, surprisingly elected uh, Republican out of uh, Massachusetts. And um, things um, really derailed a bit um, at that point with, with regard to to um, where things were going. Normally legislation go volleys back and forth between the Senate and the House and keeps going back and forth until it um, got right. But now the Democrats no longer had the ability to um, uh, override a uh, filibuster in the Senate. And so um, the legislation passed through with a, uh, uh, it was very controversial, it was a very close vote on both the House and uh, the um, Senate sides, um, and a lot of tweaking that normally would have been done during the legislative um, um, negotiations really never happened. Um, so what that's led to over the last couple of years um, has been a lot of tweaking um, at the regulatory uh, level to fix a number of things um, that creates some precedent for those of us who've been involved in um, advocacy and policy uh, initiatives for our societies with how much um, control uh, that CMS has. But the, the bottom line with all of this, regardless of the, the specifics of the details, is that the overall arching goals of the um, Affordable Care Act, whether folks agree with the specifics or not, are things like improved access, um, overriding the um, previous requirements um, that would dis uh, disqualify folks for pre-existing conditions. Um, we need to control costs. We need to better integrate our care. We need a less fragmented uh, delivery system. Um, and uh, we need to change our overall focus um, to uh, to value um, of our healthcare delivery systems, and, and clearly uh, this legislation has changed the uh, dialogue, the dynamic, um, quite considerably in the years since. Well, well, Rich, thank you. I think it's um, 
uh, noteworthy that you were able to encapsulate 50 years of history in just a couple of minutes of comment. I would uh, just add to your point that not only was the vote close, it was really strictly along party lines, which is probably one of the unfortunate realities uh, of the next few years that uh, allowed the evolution that we've uh, heard you allude to in that first comment. I think, Geraldine, if, if you wouldn't mind maybe expanding then on what Rich began to talk about, which is what is the ACA? And I'd ask you, since we're going to focus on it a little bit down the road, to perhaps not talk about the two independent boards. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that when we look at the bitter, by, uh, bitter partisan debate that we've seen around health care reform, even what you call the health care reform process, whether you refer to it as the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, um, I think that's a, a, a really telling sign of the, the divide that, that we've seen over this. But it's important also to look back and, and look at, for example, the, the election campaign leading up to 2008, where we saw all the candidates talking about health care reform, a widespread recognition that we, were, we are, we will be spending too much of our, of our national output on health care and not getting the results that we need um, when we compare what we're spending to other developed countries. Um, so initially, you know, everyone was, was very much on board with the fact that we needed to change the way we delivered and paid for health care in this country. And the overarching goals, as Rich pointed out, for the Affordable Care Act were the idea that we needed to cover more people. We needed more people to have access to health insurance. We needed to make that coverage more affordable and, importantly, more portable. Um, what we had seen with the previous benefit design and the ability of insurance companies to rescind coverage for pre-existing conditions was widely felt to um, have a negative effect on things like entrepreneurship and upward mobility because people weren't able to leave their employer at the risk of losing their insurance. So I think what we, were, we saw that the aims of the Affordable Care Act were to cover more people, make that more affordable, but also to change the way we deliver health care, to, to transition from the volume-based fee-for-service system that we had had since the inception of Medicare to a more value-based um, care delivery system. And that buzzword, that phrase, volume to value, is one that those of us in health policy and economics are hearing uh, all the time. Um, Rich referred back to the um, the efforts in the first Clinton administration, and one of the key roadblocks there was the opposition of the health insurance companies. So uh, getting the buy-in of the health insurance companies was critical in this process, and the individual mandate, the requirement for individuals to buy insurance was a critical piece of, of gaining the insurance company's support. Um, the administration had hoped that that through the use of subsidies for those um, in the workforce, but also through expansion of the Medicaid program, and Medicaid is the program that covers the poor, that that would be an easy way to bring a lot of people um, into the insured population. But obviously the Supreme Court's decision when they reviewed the Affordable Care Act and the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, the Supreme Court's decision to allow states to make an individual decision about whether they would expand Medicaid or not has been a significant roadblock for the Affordable Care Act for its goal of ensuring more people because obviously um, getting people um, into Medicaid was a key objective of the administration. Um, the rollout obviously has also been hampered by the bitter debate, um, the bitter opposition from the Republican Party. I don't know the, the tally of how many times the Republicans have tried to repeal Obamacare, but it's definitely up there in the, in the significant double digits. Um, also, you know, a huge um, a amount of egg on the face of the administration when they tried to roll out 
um, healthcare.gov, the initial website for allowing people to sign up for insurance. Um, you know, we saw a, a lot of uh, crowing on the other side um, because the idea was if you can't um, set up a website and get people to sign up, how can you achieve some of the loftier goals about improving the way we deliver care? We've also seen some roadblocks with um, the mandates that were um, implemented in the Affordable Care Act to require uh, employers to provide insurance. A lot of those have been delayed and pushed off. Um, but one of the things that I think um, has been a very interesting part of the rollout of the Affordable Care Act is the way that benefit designs are changing. Rich talked about the fact that um, with the implementation of Medicare and commercial insurance, we saw patients disconnected from the cost of their care. The need to provide care and insurance to more people has um, incentivized insurance companies to change the way that they deliver benefits. So patients are being required to pay more out of pocket, and they're really grappling with understanding the concepts of cost sharing. Having insurance, but at the same time having a significant out-of-pocket responsibility is uh, a real change for a lot of people. And um, the, insur the assurance to people that if you like your insurance, you won't have to change it, and the president certainly, I think, probably regretted making that statement, um, you know, now they're finding that, yes, I still have insurance, but I'm paying a lot more out of pocket. That's something that, that I think was perhaps unexpected, the way that patients are now becoming much more connected with the cost of their care. And I would argue probably in the end that's, uh, that's a good thing. I think the, the removal of patients from any uh, sort of sense of what the actual cost of the expensive or inexpensive procedures they were getting was actually one of the problems of our system. Somebody else was always paying for whatever the doctor and the patient thought was the right way to proceed. Geraldine, I believe back in March or May, I, I remember reading that the House had tried to repeal um, the Affordable Care Act 50 times. I won't swear to that number, but I, I think it was 50 because I, I kind of recall uh, the president joking that the 50th time might be the charm. So um, it cer certainly uh, this has highlighted the partisan divide, I think, in uh, Washington, which is probably a source of depression for a lot of people involved in policy like yourselves. Uh, those, those were two really great answers and I think bring us up to speed in general on how we got to the Affordable Care Act, what the Affordable Care Act consisted of, sans the discussion of the two independent boards, which I think we're going to get into right now. And there's a lot in a name. I think the name independent or the use of the word independent of the name is absolutely critical. These boards, PCORI and IPAP, which have entirely different functions, share the common trait of being financially independent. The financial independence was key to ensuring their theoretical vitality and their insulation from the typical factors that affect policymakers, etc. I think um, for that reason, they were worth exploring because their potential, at least in 2010, to impact on the healthcare process, the healthcare endeavor, really, was phenomenal. So we're back in 2010, and I wonder if I can come back to you, Geraldine. Could you describe the IPAB as it was structured in the founding legislation? What was it meant to do? Well, um, let's start by stepping back and talking about how the Medicare program is administered right now. There's an entity called the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which lives in Baltimore, and they, they essentially administer the Medicare program. 
there's a committee called MedPAC, the, uh, uh, that, uh, uh, independent committee that advises Congress on the Medicare program. And uh, MedPAC for many years has felt that the current payment policy system is filled with perverse incentives, the concept of doctors setting their own payments, a lot of negativity around, around the current payment system. But that committee can only make recommendations to Congress. So um, in a nutshell, IPAB was described as MedPAC on steroids, that this is going to be a committee that could not only make recommendations to Congress, but, but could actually force Congress to, to act on those recommendations. And that the, the members of that committee, the, you, you, you latched onto the keyword independent. Some of them could be providers, but that a majority of them would not be providers, and that they would be federal employees. They would have no financial motivation to do anything other than make sure that Medicare, the costs of the Medicare program were held in check. And as you said, this was legislated in the Affordable Care Act in 2010. And the idea was that, you know, with a prospective review of what Medicare costs were going to be, that there would be triggers that the IPAB would have to find a way to reduce the costs of the Medicare program. Some very interesting um, uh, caveats. They would not be allowed to decrease beneficiary access or um, uh, put in place programs that would increase revenue. Um, so really, um, you know, their focus would have to be very much on cutting costs. And I can stop there, Josh, but we can talk then perhaps more about what's actually happened with MedPAC. Depending on your perspective, uh, sorry, IPAB is either a very vital potential check on out-of-control Medicare spending, or it's what was, was commonly, the term that was commonly thrown around, a death panel, the way that we are going to um, restrict care to Medicare beneficiaries. So, uh, like yourself, I, I find the evolution of the IPAB fascinating and the language around the IPAB really almost thrilling in that it it is so variably described and so, uh, so described in such an animated way that at times the discussion seems detached from reality. But I think before we get there, let's stay back in 2010. The Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute was actually greeted in a very different way by most medical organizations, I would say, including the ACR. Uh, Rich, would you tell us what the PCORI was, was meant to be back in 2010? Sure, Josh, and I think in um, uh, contrast, as you pointed out, to the IPAB where um, there have been all these sort of terrible types of um, uh, pictures painted about where it's going, um, by and large, and obviously uh, no program is uh, universally um, uh, accepted and lauded by everybody, uh, PCORI has um, been met with um, a lot more um, enthusiasm, um, both um, going back to its early days, I think, from a concept, and now, and we will be fast-forwarding, I think, in a little bit um, to where we are today, but I think also in um, how it's rolled out um, as um, something that's been viewed uh, much more favorably. I think the context of um, PCORI for me, which stands for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research um, Institute, which is an organization that supports and funds um, research that is really patient-centered. Um, it, it, it's a fundamental difference um, in the way I think this country um, does research as opposed to the traditional go to the NIH, big investigators apply to big investigators, um, and it's really done sort of scientist um, researcher to scientist researcher. Um, the focus of PCORI is um, the patient is at the um, center. Um, 
and really that's aligned with the whole initiatives of how healthcare um, is delivered, which is, and we've alluded to this in a number of points already in the conversation, that our healthcare delivery system needs to be increasingly patient um, focused. And so this really is saying, well, we need our research to be aligned in the same way. Um, and one of the fundamental pieces um, with regard to how PCORI is structured is that it really um, makes sure that stakeholders are engaged at every um, step along the way. Um, the term translational research gets a lot of attention bench to bedside. Um, I, I liken that terminology, obviously, in a different um, sense, to really PCORI, where you know, we're, we're trying to bridge in these types of projects um, to, to be able to have everybody talking to each other rather than talking over each other, and therefore really having all stakeholders translating among themselves in, in designing projects um, and um, moving forward. And I think those have really been some of the key fundamental considerations of the review panels at PCORI, which is, you know, were all these um, stakeholders involved um, at um, every step of the process? One important, and we can talk about sort of where things have gone um, in a bit, I think you have that on the agenda to um, talk about sort of um, transition us from 2010 to 2014. Um, one important piece, I think, with regard to PCORI um, and getting back to sort of uh, Dean's comments about things like death panel um, uh, comments about the um, IPAB um, has been that uh, on the legislation, um, you know, PCORI uh, is not supposed to be considering the cost of care. Um, and, and it is sort of funny that, um, you know, we're, we're pretending we can't talk about cost, but to a large extent, it's really cost that has pushed this whole um, initiative um, forward. Um, you know, folks who are much more political insiders than me uh, will be able to share stories about some of the reasons for including that and, you know, these, um, you know, avoiding the allegations of pushing granny off the cliff and death panels um, and all those types of things. Uh, but it is interesting, um, even though it's not supposed to focus on the cost of care, um, as I've talked with um, a number of people now um, who've been successful um, securing PCORI grants, um, they're, they're being careful not to put uh, dollar um, uh, comments into their proposals, but a lot of people are increasingly talking about the value of care, and if you really look at value, it's quality divided by cost. It sort of is a Trojan horse way of um, getting it back in there. Um, and so, um, you know, where it's um, moving is not entirely where it's designed, uh, but overall uh, the focus was really to change the way we do research. So that's a fantastic uh, point, Rich, and I, I would actually underscore that point and make a, a further one. So in the legislation, it was explicitly stipulated, as you said, PCORI could not be used uh, or could not be worked to uh, deny coverage decisions or address value propositions, which stands it in contradistinction to other very well-established CER uh, practices, national CER practices outside of the United States, most notably the NICE in uh, the UK. And I think it really, um, it was designed to satisfy a political agenda and make it more palatable, but it is hard to understand when you are determining comparative effectiveness for particular treatments or, in the case of radiologists, I guess, diagnostic studies, why you wouldn't want to consider the value proposition. So whereas it may be sneaking in, one could say it's hard to imagine how it would have ever been set up to succeed without including some sort of discussion about the value of care. The other point I would make is that the uh, PCORI works from a trust fund, which is extremely well-funded. From 2010 to 2012, the U.S. Treasury provided $210 million. This has accelerated over the past few years to $320 million per year. 
and currently between the two different funding sources, which are beyond the scope of what we want to talk about here today, it's estimated that Becoria will receive $650 million a year, such that by September 2019, $3.5 billion will have been provided to fund these kinds of CER studies. That is a very significant commitment and obviously something that will have meaningful impact on healthcare going forward. Let me throw it back to Geraldine and, and sort of ask a two-part question. Uh, I think we should flash forward to 2014 as we get to the latter part of this podcast. And I'd ask you to make general comments about the Affordable Care Act, where it is in 2014, as well as the IPAP, where we are right now. So, you know, I think that um, 2014 was a very important year um, for the Affordable Care Act um, in that it's really taken us on a path of no return, especially the the insurance reforms, the idea that you can't have your coverage rescinded because of a pre-existing condition or, or a new diagnosis. Those are, those are um, changes that I think are going to be very difficult. Despite all of the roadblocks, all of the opposition, um, I think it's going to be very difficult to change those. Um, but one of the other things, and we mentioned this obviously in, in the paper about the IPAB, is that... Um, for something that caused so much rhetoric and so much alarm, I mean, every medical specialty aligned um, against it um, and a lot of, of political opposition, um, the circumstances in which it would have functioned have really changed. We have seen a, a significant decrease in healthcare spending, Medicare spending in the last few years. Multifactorial, Rich has written some great uh, uh, work on why that's happening in imaging, but everything from Lipitor coming off patent to um, nursing home uh, cuts from Medicare, and it's not across the board. We're certainly seeing increases in hospital spending, but the fact is that the IPAB um, has not been relevant because healthcare spending has not increased um, in the way that it was designed to to uh, impact. So um, that and, and the fact that the president has not named a single person to the IPAB board uh, means that it's still out there lurking like the specter at the feast, but it hasn't, um, it hasn't had the role that um, one might have imagined it would. And it's probably further worth mentioning that in response to a question by Senator Roberts from Kansas when they were uh, interviewing Ms. Burwell for her current position, which is highly relevant to the IPAB. She said that the IPAB, as it is currently written, would not affect beneficiaries. And from her tone and what seemed to be her sentiment, it did not seem she had a great appetite for pushing the IPAB forward. So it indeed may have come to pass that the IPAB, which created so much consternation, really goes away with a whimper, uh, at least the mandatory recommendations that uh, people were so concerned about. Rich, uh, you actually recently worked on a PCORI grant. Maybe you could tell us uh, where uh, PCORI is in 2014 and if you think it appropriate reference the work you did on that grant. Sure. Uh, yeah, and, um, you know, I must um, provide a little bit of context uh, for that as somebody who um, has uh, been in uh, private practice for almost 20 years and uh, uh, recently transitioned to um, uh, an academic um, environment. Um, it's been an amazing learning uh, process uh, for me, not only in um, trying to uh, learn about the world of uh, grantsmanship, uh, which is an uh, uh, entire uh, study in and of itself, uh, but uh, uh, learning about PCORI um, as well. Um, and just a little bit of perspective on PCORI, having spent 
spent a lot of time talking to people who've looked at traditional grants um, versus, um, you know, this, this new way of doing things. Um, you know, there, there has been an awful lot of skepticism um, about the um, PCORI submission process. A lot of, um, you know, dyed-in-the-wool academicians are, you know, have taken, and I'll exaggerate this a little bit, of, you know, I'm a researcher. You know, what do these patients know about um, doing uh, research? Um, but um, even that being said, as you indicated, there's a huge amount of dollars uh, there. I've heard somebody say, and I'm not familiar with the specific dollar amounts, um, that um, PCORI now is um, on track to be awarding uh, more new grant dollars than the National Cancer Institute. And so whether people necessarily like it or not within the research world, um, they, they, it's gotten their attention. Um, and I think the people who get these concepts about moving forward, um, value-focused care, a lot of the things that Geraldine uh, talked about, a lot of the things that um, we've worked together on and a lot of the initiatives from the college, um, PCORI is um, nicely um, aligned um, with um, that process. Um, so at least for me, it's been an interesting process because um, the first grant that I've uh, uh, been written into as a uh, co-investigator actually is PCORI. And so while people say, oh, this is a strange new world, um, for me, it's just the new world uh, for me. Um, you know, I'm actually involved in a couple of uh, projects now on the PCORI side. Uh, one, that the uh, Neiman Health Policy Institute, um, and, you know, we'll find out with regard to your question, um, you know, what's our experience? We'll find out in three weeks when PCORI makes its announcements. But uh, uh, with the Neiman Health Policy Institute working with the uh, Leahy Clinic, um, which has developed a, a very uh, robust um, uh, program uh, for uh, lung cancer screening uh, using the NLST um, guidelines, um, we're looking at uh, patient perceptions of um, radiologists um, being the uh, primary coordinators of their care and how that works into payment models um, where there's a one price on the front end uh, one of the concerns about uh, screening, particularly mammography, is a good example where patients get the screen for free, but then you call them back for other services and their deductibles and all these types of things that we've talked about um, kick in. Um, and, and one of the key pieces uh, with that um, proposal um, has been that um, we've had patients involved at every step of the process, and I think that's an absolutely critical piece there, that there's patient groups, um, and this isn't just what a bunch of doctors think about these processes or an economist thinks about the process. This is what actually people who are high-risk patients um, who've chosen to pursue uh, the recommendations of screening, some um, involved in the process who've chosen to ignore uh, the recommendations of the screening program um, to really get a better understanding of how these uh, models are delivered. Um, and my other experience right now is working with some folks here at Emory uh, no specific project, um, but one of the key pieces to us, is, for us, has been to really, really embrace this concept of patient engagement, stakeholder engagement. Um, and so actually our work group right now, uh, as we're doing some brainstorming on a couple projects, actually has about a third of the people sitting around the table, people who are members of our patient um, uh, and family uh, advisory board here at the um, university to get their take on this. And it's been a very um, interesting learning process separate from, from the whole grant uh, process as well um, to hear some things that we as clinicians or scientists um, may think are really exciting to get the reaction of patients and then some of the things that um, they think are exciting getting our reactions and, um, and, and trying to find that common ground that uh, will be as of interest to as many stakeholders as possible I think ultimately is going to be the win story for these programs. And just from that answer, I think that we can contrast what's happening with the IPAB, which Geraldine spoke about, where there has nobody 
been appointed. No one seems to be going to get appointed, at least as far as we can tell. No mandatory recommendations are called for versus PCORI, where we talked about the trust fund that supports it and the ongoing activities of participating or hoping to participate in grants that Rich just outlined. Well, as we draw to a close, let me just throw the question to, to both of you. Any thoughts about where we go from here on either the Affordable Care Act or either of the independent boards? Well, Josh, if I may, I'm assuming that most of our listeners are going to be physicians. It would be great to think that that this podcast would reach the wider community, uh, especially our patients. But I think that you know, the curve of healthcare payment policy has it's maybe only bent a little bit, but in my opinion, it's bent fairly irrevocably towards value. And you know, the value-based payments that we've seen created through Medicare and a lot of private insurers are really only part of the issue. And going back to to Rich's uh, discussion about involving patients, our patients more. Than than ever are being forced to understand the cost of their care, and they're asking us a lot of questions about why healthcare pricing is so complex and so confusing. So it's really never been more important for us as physicians, especially for us as radiologists who are often somewhat distant from our patients, to articulate to our patients the value that we deliver. And this has been a difficult time for us as radiologists because we've been vilified for being part of the volume problem and punished through a series of fairly drastic reimbursement cuts. So finding the will to change is difficult, but we really have to, to rise to that challenge. So I think connecting with our patients is a really important strategy for helping all of us transition through the Affordable Care Act, but really towards moving towards the new health care of the future. That's a fantastic answer, Geraldine. Rich, any, any thoughts? Yeah, I uh, certainly will um, echo um, what Geraldine has said. I agree entirely. It really is a changing paradigm. Um, it, it's it's very easy, I think, for um, folks um, to listen to podcasts like this and read articles to really um, get lost in the um, weeds of the regulations, um, the details of Obamacare or ACA, depending upon what your your preference is for calling it, um, and, and, and to miss the big picture. And I think the big picture is what I would encourage people to focus on more because there's going to be a lot of regulatory tweaking. There's probably going to be some legislative um, tweaking um, as well. Um, and so um, when a lot of folks hear, you know, healthcare reform, put that in quotes, they think immediately about the legislation of the ACA or Obamacare. Um, I would encourage folks to think really about the reasons um, that the ACA was implemented, issues related to patient access, um, improved delivery systems, um, enhanced quality, reduced cost, improved patient satisfaction. I think they're the big picture things that we need to be focusing on um, to get um, everybody to buy into this rather than the um, specific um, details. And I think the, the, the critical piece, and to, to pick up on Geraldine's comment about uh, patients as well, um, is that traditionally the focus of all these types of um, outcomes, goals, um, has been um, from the perspective of those of us who are healthcare delivery uh, uh, providers um, here. I think we absolutely need to consider patients and other stakeholders and their perspectives moving forward because I think ultimately focusing on those things from everybody's perspective gets us moving in the right direction towards the delivery system. I think that you know we're going to find um, everybody, regardless of your side of the aisle in Congress, um, agreeing on more um, in concept and uh, being happier to be patients in those types of systems. Well, I want to thank both of my co-discussants. Wow, this was very interesting. Speaking of big picture, uh, Rich and Geraldine brought us from the Great Society and Lyndon Johnson all the way to 2014. 
while at the same time being able to get into the legislative minutia, really drill down where it was necessary. I hope listeners of this podcast found it as informative I did, and I look forward to, to speaking with you again as topics pop up in the future. Thank you again. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Josh.